Okay, I just want to issue a disclaimer before we start. Um, I know a lot of you follow along in version every Sunday morning, and um, it was pointed out to me that there I I made a very bad typo in version that says that this morning we're going to be in Revelation 23. And um, oddly enough, the last chapter in Revelation, Revelation 22, has a warning about not adding anything to Revelation. So... Um, <laughs> What a typo to make. Please forgive me. Uh, those of you who are new, I promise you I'm not starting some new cult. Um, it was a typo. We are in Revelation 22. We are, we are winding down the book of Revelation. We've been in here for several months. Actually, we're, we are winding down the Apostle John. I'm guessing we started the Gospel of John 2018, maybe, and we went through that like a year and a half, and everybody was like, ooh, you should do the letters of John. Cool, we'll do the letters of John. We made it about halfway through the letters of John, and then we shut down, and we were in the Minor Prophets for the whole of that, and then we got back into the letters of John, and everybody's like, well, obviously you're doing Revelation next, right? I said, obviously not necessarily. And here we are, all the way through Revelation to chapter 22. So this morning and next week, uh, we will be finishing up, but there will be no Revelation 23. So those of you who saw that and freaked out a little bit, it's okay. It's okay. So um, I was thinking this week back to that little village in North Carolina the, where I pastored while I was in seminary. It, it was a little place called Ingold. Um, I, I, if you look up Ingold on um, Google Maps, there's only two places in America called Ingold. Oddly enough, a little village of 484 people, according to the last census in North Carolina, where in that county there are more pigs and turkeys than humans. No lie. And believe it or not, somewhere down in the Bel Air area, there is actually an Ingold Street, the only two places in America with the name Ingold. So obviously we need to make a field trip uh, down there and take a picture. Um, But I remember when I was first there, um, one of the older gentlemen in the church came by, We got in his truck, and he took me for a ride about two or three miles down the road um, to the river. And uh, as we were going up, he pointed uh, to me to some woods over to the left, and he said, if you look closely, you'll notice there's a section of the woods where all the trees are taller. And it was very obvious, like the trees went like this, and then they went up, and then there was a big section where they were tall, and then they went back down again. He said, that's where we're going. We're going for a walk in those woods to that stand of tall trees. So we, he pulled the car over, the truck over to the side, and we get out, and we go walking in. And in the middle of that stand of tall trees, uh, he showed me the place where the church had once been, and the cemetery was still there, all grown over. And um, he showed me grave markers in there from the 1700s. Um, so the church had been there a long time, to say the least. Um, and every once in a while, somebody would go out into the middle of the woods and just kind of take a weed eater to it. But there it was. You would never know driving by that there had been a church there. You would never know driving by that there had been a town there. There was absolutely no evidence whatsoever, other than a couple of houses, that at one time in history, there had been a thriving town in that spot because there was nothing there. And what he explained to me was, is there was a day uh, when river traffic there on that little tiny river, um, all the tobacco in that area, all the cotton in that area, they would load it up on barges and it would just go on down the river and it was hugely important to commerce. And then trains came along and trains had to pick a town and the trains picked a different town. 
river traffic died up and the trains went to a town about five miles away and that little town completely disappeared. And when the town disappeared, they literally picked the church up and somehow with a big team of mules dragged it three miles down the road to a new location in a little village with a post office and a uh, little store where you could get gas and the farmers would gather at lunch um, for a cold drink and a pack of nabs, as they say in North Carolina. Does anybody know what a pack of nabs is? No hands. Okay, well, I'm just sorry. Okay, um, they're the little crackers, but they're called, it's a brand, nabs. Pack of nabs. Anyway, um, it, <laughs> um, it, it's just fascinating to study it. If you could study the history, how many cities that don't exist anymore? Because rivers, right? Washington on the Brazos. The number of people who've never been to Washington on the Brazos because it's just it's not a lot there anymore, right? Um, I was reading this week that if the Nile ever disappeared, that Egypt as we know it would disappear, right? The Amazon River, right? You could probably go all around the world and find countries, cities that as we know it would just practically just not exist um, if it weren't for the rivers that are there. Travel commerce, habitats for animals, jobs for fishermen, irrigation for farmers, <laughs> carrying away of rain water. So last week in Revelation, um, we came, it was Revelation 21, um, we we came to this passage where there was this new Jerusalem. It was a new Jerusalem, but it was built on an old, old foundation with walls built on the foundation of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Um, but it's just massive, massive epic proportion cities. Um, how many people, billions, I don't know how many people will be there. Um, um, and I just, I just told you last week, if, if city life gets you down, like if living in a place like New York City, it's not going to be like that, right? It, it says nothing unclean, no liars, right? No deception, no shame. Um, so it's just going to be just a better city than you can imagine. But still, um, if that, well, today we have countryside. So all is well for those who just get stressed out. Um, but it's, it's nothing to stress over. It's going to be a city like, but, but you have to ask the question, um, what will people in a city that big, that many people, what will they need? Well, they'll need God, obviously. Um, but how will that work? Like a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. Will there be necessities? Obviously, housing is taken care of. Um, there won't be light bulbs because there won't be nighttime, so I don't reckon there'll be any electricity. But what about food? Like... Jesus ate some fish with his new body, but he also walked through a door. Like, did the fish stay on the other side of the door? It's like splat. Why is there fish on the floor? Oh, that Jesus ate. Yeah, that, how will that work? I don't know. But in Revelation 22, we, we find something incredible. It's a river of life and a tree of life. And you go, well, that's it? This better be big. <laughs> It is. It's, it's big. And so I want to read just these five verses and dividing uh, chapter 22 into two pieces. We'll finish Revelation sort of next week, a little review after that. But 
Um, this angel that we met last week and met weeks before that, because he was one of the angels who had the bowls with the plagues, um, it says, the angel then showed me, it's Revelation 22, starting at verse 1, showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever. Now, let me just say, try to make a connection here, because um, I've talked with more than one or two or three of you, um, and I've talked with people outside of this room who have confessed to me that as beautiful as these passages are, as amazing as the imagination is for these, these passages, um, as hopeful as this future is, um, that it doesn't provide that much motivation for obeying Jesus in the here and now. It's kind of like, well, if God's going to wipe everything out and start all over, kind of what's the point, right? Um, and some have even have said to me, and I've heard this many times, that the promise even of future reward doesn't move them a lot. And I, I get that, but I think there's a couple of, of things that we can see here this morning um, about this new heaven, this new earth, this new city, and this river of life and this tree of life, um, and a couple of, I believe, miraculous things we see in this passage um, for the future and for the here and now that maybe will provide a couple of shifts in our brains and different ways of thinking that maybe you can bring together for us. I mean, we're, we're to the end of Revelation. Hopefully this has been happening all along, but really bringing together for us once again kind of the future and the present. And, and so there's, there's two, maybe three miracles here. The miracle of new creation and the miracle of contentment. Um, let's start with the miracle of, of new creation. And let me do a little bit of history here. I want to go all the way back to maybe even before, to before the New Testament. I want to go back to your Old Testament and then bring it up to, to New Testament times. Um, and I want to talk for a moment about the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. Um, we saw this in the Gospel of John. So this is a bit of a review if you've been around for a while. But um, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, was... A, a big, um, big feast time, if you will. Everybody would travel back to Jerusalem, and it was a time of remembering when the Israelites wandered in the, the desert after coming out of Egypt, and they wandered in the wilderness, and they lived in tents. And so everybody would show up, and they would, they would build these little lean-to tents out of branches and whatever they could. And it was a way of commemorating and remembering God's faithfulness to provide for them in the desert. Every day there was manna, and... Everywhere they went, there would be a rock that they could get water from. Pretty amazing. So God's provision, and they would just celebrate this every year. So the population of, Israel, of, of Jerusalem would just swell. Hundreds of thousands of people in these, these little booths just set up in every little alleyway, every little front yard, every little place you could put one, there would be one. And these families just camping, if you will, in town. And so you can just imagine families together, old friends who haven't seen each other, hugging, catching up. The place is packed. 
And on the end of this feast time, um, there was a ceremony called, it had two names. It was called either the drawing of the water or the pouring of the water. Depending on which part you thought was most important, drawing it or pouring it, whatever. Okay, so the drawing of the water or the pouring of the water. And Josephus, a first century uh, historian, said, um, the one who has not seen the drawing of the water has not seen joy. If you've not seen this ceremony, you don't know what joy looks like. It was the most intensely exuberant celebratory ceremony in all of Judaism. So just, just kind of put your imagination caps on. Imagine what this looks like. All the people gathering in the temple, they're up here at the top of the steps, and the priest would be there, and he would raise this golden pitcher. And all the people would shout for joy as he raised this golden pitcher to let them know that the celebration, the ceremony is going to begin. And he would read a passage of scripture, maybe sometimes from Isaiah 12, and, and it would go like this, Isaiah 12, starting in verse 2. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Here's the key verse. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let, his known, let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel. So you see what they're doing. They're taking the past, the present, and the future and putting it all together in this ceremony. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. But then they're saying, but the day is coming when all the nations are going to see this. Right? So the crowd would part. The priest would come down, the people would just be dancing and singing and chanting this verse. With joy we will draw water from the well of salvation. And they would make their way to the pool of Siloam with this promise, this prayer this on their lips, celebrating, dancing. The priest would draw the water. The celebration would kick into fifth gear. They would make their way back to the temple, dancing, singing, celebrating. They would lay down branches around the altar, making a canopy of sorts. And they would pray the prayer from Psalm 118, 25. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. They would pray a prayer for the crops coming. They would pray a prayer for salvation from their enemies. A prayer for the kingdom to come. And the priest would stand and read these scriptures, like maybe Psalm 46. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Or maybe they would read a passage, a portion of Ezekiel 47, because in Ezekiel 47, it pictures a future day when this creek that turns into a river will come out of the temple and out from the throne of God, and it will run down. And wherever it goes, everything on its banks will just become lush and green and everything will grow. And it will even run down to the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea which has nothing alive in it, the Dead Sea that I've laid down in and I couldn't sink. And trust me, my, my kids will tell you, if I go to the pool, I neither float nor sink. I just kind of sit in the middle. It's horrible. But I'm on the Dead Sea and I'm just kind of floating because it's so full of salt, you can't sink. 
But it says a day is coming when this, this river will come out of the temple and it will become fresh. Or in Zechariah 14.8, on that day living water shall flow out of Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea, half to the western sea, and continue in summer as in winter. So the priest would then take that, that golden pitcher of water and he would pour it down the steps of the temple as a picture of the day when that would be a river. Just, can you imagine the joy and the celebration and the shouting and the dancing that this is going to be a river someday. Today is just a picture. But God says it's going to be a river. Now, imagine that one day, on the day when that's happening, the great day of the feast, as it's called, imagine a man stands and says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. (laughs) That's when Jesus said that. You have this exuberant expectation of the kingdom coming and this river of, of life flowing, but let me just tell you, if you're thirsty with expectation for the salvation of God, if you're thirsty with this longing for the kingdom, if you're thirsty for all things to be made new, come to me. And whoever believes in me, not only will you get a drink out of your heart will flow. And then John writes later on, now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not yet been given because he had not been glorified. So when Jesus says to the woman at the well, well, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd ask me and I would have given you living water, Right? anyone's in Christ, they're in a new creation. It's all things new, this living water that gives life wherever it goes. Jesus stands in that moment and says, come to me if you're thirsty. It's a work of the Spirit. You come to Jesus. So in Revelation 22, in the new heaven and new earth, in New Jerusalem, there's Main Street running right down the middle of town, and there's a river running through town. And this just isn't like the architects got together and said, you know what we need? We need an aesthetic. We need a water feature, something that bubbles like at the mall. No, we need some ambiance in here. No, it's not that. It's, the, it's understood that when this river flows through, everybody will always know when they look at that, I know where that came from. That came from the throne of God. That comes from Jesus. That has its source in our Lord. Revelation 21.6, we read this a couple of weeks ago. He said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So people who drink from the river of life will just think, this is, this is the water I've always wanted. But he says to us, now if you're thirsty, come to Jesus and drink. You see, it's always Jesus. It's always you come to him. There's always going to be in the new Jerusalem a reminder of the miracle of life the miracle of new creation, the miracle of abundance. And what's the miracle? Is the new heaven the miracle? The new earth the miracle? The new Jerusalem the miracle? Yeah, but you know what's a bigger miracle? The new you that you came to Jesus and got when you got a drink. And the new river coming out of you when the Spirit came in and made you new. That's a bigger miracle. I mean, living water is pretty cool, but living you and living me 
amazing. And that river will always be there. It will always be the reminder of where it comes from. But then, on the banks of that river, there's a tree, or a tree with roots that goes out and makes other trees like it. That's going to be interesting. I don't, like, yeah, how that works. We just read this. There's a river whose streams make glad the city. It's going to make glad the city. Either side of the river, the tree of life. Twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves will heal the nations. That's how it's all going to start off. Nothing accursed. So Adam and Eve, in sin and death, lose access to the tree of life, which is good because who wants to live forever under the curse? But there's no more curse. There's no more curse on the land even. Romans 8 says that even creation is groaning and waiting for the day, for the cycle of death to, to end. Here there's no more curse. So back to Ezekiel's description. Everywhere this river goes, everything grows in abundance. And there's this tree of life and you get new fruit every month. I don't know if that's like year after year. I don't know what that'll be like. If it's like combo fruit, like new stuff. Oh, man. I mean, those us East Tennesseans were thinking there will be a fruit that tastes like the perfect combination of Mountain Dew and a moon pie. Man, that's so good. Yeah, I don't think so, but man, that would be cool. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm just picturing endless orchards, if you will, because we've got a lot of mouths to feed. And if there's any part of the tree we only think of for a few weeks every year, it's the leaves, especially around here with those pesky leaves that just never stop falling. Ah, You just always raking leaves, it seems like. Guess what? These leaves heal people. They're not just for raking. Yeah. But why will we still need food? Like God could have done away with that whole thing. It could have just been a city. They lived happily ever after. And I think maybe part of it is is that we have yet to fully imagine what it will be like when humanity is perfected. Like we've... We've never laid eyes on anyone who was perfectly, fully human, but we will then. Like we say, oh, I'm only human. Maybe the truth is, well, you're not human enough. That's why we say it's inhuman when we treat each other badly, right? But this is what's amazing to me. In the New Jerusalem, the luxury items are pavement and foundation. That's, that's where the luxury items are. You just walk on them. Don't even think about taking it with you, right? That is the opposite of what this fallen world gives. The fallen world does just the opposite. Here's an abundance of all the things you don't really need while starving us of what we really do need. Yet here's a city, a city, a close-knit community of millions where there's no shame, no deception, no judgment, with every survival need supplied. I'm just, I was thinking this week of, of like a city like Calcutta. Millions in the slums just go on forever. Just packed on top of each other. Where people wake up every morning hungry, wondering if they're going to survive the day. And here, 
is a city with living river, living tree, every need supplied. Think about this. Living water, orchards, the presence of Jesus is all we'll ever need. There's a C.S. Lewis book, The Great Divorce. I don't know if you've ever read that. It's a fascinating book. But basically, um, I know this is going to sound crazy. Just read it. But basically, the way it works is a tour bus from heaven goes and visits hell every once in a while. And if you want to, you can leave hell and take a tour of heaven on the tour bus. But no one ever, and they give you the option of staying. If you want to stay, you can. No one ever stays. You know why? Because it's too real. It's too real. But the interesting picture of hell that C.S. Lewis gives is it's a vast plain where people can live as far away from their neighbor as they want to (laughs) because nobody likes their neighbor. It takes forever to get anywhere because people keep moving to the suburbs. And then somebody moves in next door and they're like, ah, I can't believe you moved that close to me and they move five miles, right? It just goes on and on and on of people being miserable, right? This is, this is how Eugene Peterson describes this, and I love this. This is what he describes what it will be like. When our basic needs are met, met, God does not then give us something we don't need. He gives us more of the same. For life is so profound that we never come to the end of it and never cease needing what fuels the energetic work of becoming ever more abundantly ourselves. See, that's exactly the opposite of American Christianity because American Christianity says, well, look, let's get the basics out of the way because what God really wants for you is your dream house, your dream car, and your dream vacations and just more stuff. And I, I, I said this last week, Revelation doesn't tell us everything about heaven or the new city or any of this, but I just don't see a lot here about you getting your dream house and your dream car. But guess what? You get Jesus, a river, and a tree and each other. Doesn't this add new meaning to Jesus' promise? Where he says, don't worry about what you'll eat, and don't worry about what you'll wear. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and I'll make sure you have food and you have clothing. That, that verse sounds like a ripoff. Can we be real for a moment? Food and clothing, Jesus? There was a guy on TV told me that today I'm working on the machine in the factory, tomorrow I get the factory. Hello? Food and clothing? Do you see the miracle in this text? Can you ever being, imagine being deeply, deeply content with food and clothing? Like, did you taste the fruit this month? Whoa. Wow. In other words, what is going to have to change for this to work? I am. I am. Because right now, I'm just not content with food and clothing. Right? I mean, imagine someone writing a book with a title. I don't know. You think of the title. Your best life now. And it's all about how you can be perfectly happy with Jesus, water, fruit, and neighbors. <laughs> I won't go ahead and predict that would not be a bestseller. Yeah. So a river of life is miraculous. A tree of life is miraculous. But people who are deeply grateful and joyful and content with it is even more miraculous. And, and even there's a mystery here and... Um, 
you guys go and talk about this over lunch because I think it's, there's something going on here. Verse 5, night will be no more. There will be no need for light of lamp or sun. We saw that. God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. They. Daniel 7, 18, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and shall possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Three. Two forevers and an extra ever. The kingdom and the dominion of the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. And this is just what I'm thinking because I've been reading in Genesis and I've come to the part where Joseph is faithful and wise and blessed and guess what he's given? There's, he's given an interpretation of a dream. Guess what? Famine's coming. You need to collect all this stuff during the good years and then we need to administrate this. Like, maybe when you've got a city with a billion people in it and crops and there's a they and there's people, maybe we're just going to have some Josephs and Josephines who are going to administrate this deal. How cool is that? Okay. You guys talk about that at lunch. Maybe the, maybe the thousand years leading up to that will be m- like practice. Like we'll all learn a trade. Like how to do horse and cart and put the fruit on and take it to the... Who knows? I'm not going to speculate, but I think it sounds fun. Okay. Here's the last miracle. Um, and this is just beautiful. Um, verse four, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Just two verses, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully. Ready? Even as I have been fully known. Everything I see is like through tinted windows. I was at the Shell station yesterday over here on Robinson, and this big truck pulls in. And I, could, I was vaguely aware as it went by that somebody in it was waving at me. That's amazing. I was looking through a gat glass dimly. And I was sitting there and in walks my neighbor. I'm like, was that you waving? I thought there was somebody mafia member in this. Yeah. <laughs> he said, that happens all the time. I know 40 or 50 neighbors and we all wave at each other. Nobody knows who anybody is because we see through a glass darkly. We know in part, then we will see face to face. And listen, we are fully known right now. There's nothing about you God doesn't know. But every hindrance in us will be removed to us knowing God. There will be nothing in us that makes us pull back in shame or to feel judged. Any fear in us, any whatever it is in us that makes us pull back from being feeling known, like putting on fig leaves, that's gone, and we're just in this fully known relationship with God. Beloved, we are God's children now, First John 3, 2, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So those, that's, that's the miracles, the miracle of a new creation in us, making us so that we can live in a place where we just go deeper and deeper and deeper in just being fully ourselves with a tree of life and river of life and and living in a city with Jesus. We were, um, I I have to finish with this. Next week is going to be kind of like recap, 6 through 21. Um, 
But um, I don't know who I quote this from. John's vision of heaven is not a vision of the end. It is a vision of a new, better beginning. It's not the end. It's a new, better beginning. We were, we were at Papa and Googie's, Glenn and Sherry, for those of you who know them like that way, the Darbys. Um, got too many names, don't they? Um, and um, he puts this YouTube video that goes on for like an hour on this TV, and it's just like this soft, pretty music, and it's Switzerland, and it's like a drone flying all over Switzerland, and it's like this train going through the snow, but then it comes to this part where it's springtime, and it's so green and lush, it's almost unimaginable, and the water is so blue, it's almost unimaginable, and, um, and Papa says, you know, I think that's probably more like heaven than anybody thinks it will be. And um, I immediately thought of the, the very end of the Chronicles of Narnia in the last battle when it says they come into the new Narnia and it says the greens were just greener and the trees were more tree-like <laughs> and they would run and just never get tired and swim and never get tired because the blue was, and the blue was just bluer, right? We talked about that last week. Maybe God will invent new colors. Um, but... This is, this is how that book ends. I can barely get through reading this, so please forgive me. Um, I read this a thousand times. I can still barely get through it. But Aslan is speaking to them in this new world. And it says, as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All of their life in this world and all of their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. And now at last, they were the beginning, chapter one, of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. (laughs) Every chapter better than the one before. Like, you thought last month's fruit was good? Wait till the fruit of this month comes out, right? I mean, it just gets better and better and better. The presence of Jesus gets better and better and better. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this book. Um, Thank you for truth. Thank you for how beautiful you are, for revealing yourself to us. And God, um, just if there's anyone here today who's just never come to you for a drink, never come to you for the satisfaction of their hope, the satisfaction of salvation. Maybe today would be the day when they just come to you and you quench their thirst forever. God, that's a miracle. A new creation in Christ is just a miracle. Lord, I know that we're just what, six months away from advertisements that say something like, a new year, a new you. And God, we can't make a new you. We can't. We're incapable of it. You're the new you maker. And so, God, we thank you that in Christ we're a new creation. And I thank you that someday the new creation will live in a new city and will be, if it's possible, to be even newer new. Um, whatever that means. Um, But Lord, as we seek the kingdom first, um, I pray that you would just give us a contentment. 
I know the world thinks that contentment, I've, goodness, I've been told in the last two months by more than one person who doesn't know Jesus that contentment is just not something we should go for. Um, contentment is just weird and odd in this world, but I pray that we would have it. There would just be a deep-seated joy um, in the simplicity of following Jesus that would set us apart from a world that says more is better, a world that says the unnecessary is the necessary. Lord, we want to see your face because we want to be like you, Jesus. And I pray, God, that you just open our hearts to that and long for that to see the beauty of the Lord. I pray our eyes would be opened to that daily and we'd be transformed in the process. We pray all this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.